Hello, I'm Jack Snow, and we are The Resistance. Welcome to our podcast, The Avalanche of Resistance, where you'll hear reports about vital grassroots activism across the web and beyond. Tonight on Avalanche of Resistance, we have our guest, uh, Regina Bateson, from California District 4 as part of our series of Blue Wave interviews. How are you doing tonight, Regina? Right, I'm doing very well. Thank you. So to start this off with what industries are in California 4th Congressional District? Yeah, so our district is one of the most beautiful places in the country. Um, a lot of people probably hear ah, California's 4th District and they wonder, where is that? They don't really feel any identification with it. Here's what's in the 4th District. We have Lake Tahoe, and we have Yosemite National Park here. So this is a beautiful district that runs up and down the Sierra and the foothills here in Northern California. We also have some suburbs of Sacramento, and that's actually where a lot of our population is located. Um, so we have a variety of industries here. We definitely do have a lot of small businesses that depend on tourism. Uh, we have millions of visitors a year coming to our district because of our beautiful mountains, our ski industry, our lakes and our rivers. And then we also do have a lot of health care um, in the suburbs that are closer to Sacramento, uh, particularly in Roseville. There are two large hospital centers, a lot of medical professionals here, um, also folks working on the administrative administrative side of healthcare care um, in the insurance industry. So those are a few of the major industries. And then, of course, education um, and social services, as in most places in the U.S. And the health care issue is one that you're very concerned about. Absolutely. It's a big deal here in our race. So Tom McClintock, our incumbent, uh, did vote to repeal the Affordable Care Act last year. That was one of the main reasons why people came out into the streets here by the thousands, flooded his town halls, and really made their voices heard. Uh, they thought it was unacceptable for us to have someone representing us in Washington who's trying to take care away from people in our country. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I know how important health care is um, for families in our district here. If we want people to be working, to be productive, um, to be going about their lives the way they want to, they need to be healthy and able to access the care that they need without going bankrupt. Um, you know, I myself, uh, for example, have twins. And I can tell you that the very day I found out that I was going to be having twins, the first thought that crossed my mind was about the costs. It was about the costs of the care that I was going to need. It was about the costs of the care that they might need if they were born prematurely. I mean, I was worried that even having insurance at the time, we could have been facing hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical bills. And medical expenses used to be one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in our country. Um, the Affordable Care Act did a lot to improve upon that, to make it so that's not the case anymore. You know, in my family's own case, um, we were really protected by the fact that the Affordable Care Act has put into place caps on how much you could be charged per year, um, how much you have to pay out of pocket if you do have health insurance. So, you know, I understand that the Affordable Care Act has made a lot of really important improvements, and I think that we need to keep pushing forward when it comes to health care. And this is a, a giant difference between me and the incumbent, Tom McClintock. Um, can you tell me the, what the difference is in a state like California where we have the Medicaid expansion and another state say, for example, like the state of Idaho that doesn't, and what, what effect that has on um, people being able to afford care, um, small business owners and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, in California, we are lucky that um, our state did expand 
uh, Medicaid here, it's called Medi-Cal. And so that means that more people are being covered, um, including, you know, even folks who uh, maybe don't have children, but are working adults. And I think that's exactly what we should be doing, right? People should be able um, to get health insurance. We should be expanding the numbers of people who are covered. Um, you see stark differences. And, you know, when we're comparing with states that opted not to expand Medicaid, unfortunately, um, I've seen some maps looking at insurance and uninsurance rates. And when you're looking at the borders between two states, one that expanded Medicaid and one that didn't, you know, you can see the state line right there in the numbers of people who are insured or uninsured. Um, I mean, it makes a stark difference. And, you know, for families that are working hard, that want to be able to get care uh, and afford it, I mean, this makes a big difference. It makes a big difference to their quality of life. You earned your PhD at Yale. During that time, you wrote a paper published in the American Political Science Review, Crime Victimization and Political Participation. Um, we, we certainly saw uh, this spring some, some indications of that from the Parkland students and other young people at the March for Our Lives. How did your district react to these children? Right. So our district actually um, had some young people who traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. to participate in the March for Our Lives there and then uh, came back and organized a town hall for our lives here in our district. You know, I was really uh, proud and honored to be able to go and participate there, um, to talk with them, to answer questions from the community for an extended period of time. Um, So I would definitely say that people in our district are activated. They're concerned. um, They are, you know, really reacted, I think, with um, the same degree of compassion and outrage that people did across the rest of the country when we saw what happened uh, in Parkland. But we're also inspired by the leadership the students have shown since then. What are your thoughts on this, this wave of political activism that's taking root, particularly with the young people here? Well, I think it's good. I mean, I think it's fantastic that, um, you know, I said this at the town hall for our lives here. I think that sometimes people who are younger um, are the visionary leaders that we need. You know, they're the ones who uh, aren't bound by sort of the status quo or conventional wisdom. I mean, they're willing to ask the really hard questions and push us forward and, you know, think hard about what's possible um, and then push those boundaries. So I think it's great that they're showing tremendous moral leadership on this issue. Um, I think it's a change the country needs. And certainly it's, it's something that a lot of the leaders in the Democratic Party have discussed. I mean, we've heard, we've heard uh, Joe Biden and uh, Howard Dean talk about how they feel very strongly that, that the Democrats need to uh, uh, listen to the millennials and, and other younger generations. Um, what's your background with the 4th District? So the 4th District is my home. This is where I grew up. Uh, My family has been here since the early 1980s, and I absolutely love our community. And uh, I went to our public schools here. I worked my first jobs here doing everything from ice cream scooping to softball umpiring. Um, And I know that our community is full of really good, decent people. And that's really why I decided to step up and run for Congress. Um, I was really frustrated to see that we had a representative who's so far out of touch with the values of our community. And I think we deserve better here. How will you use your education and experience to benefit your constituents? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I think I really bring a combination of local roots and local knowledge and loyalty to the community here, uh, but also national and international experience. So when I was in the Foreign Service, you know, I had to go out and solve problems on behalf of American citizens who sometimes 
you know, had been victims of car accidents or people who had been, um, had faced other serious problems while they were abroad and, you know, really had to find practical solutions and get results fast under challenging circumstances. Um, in my academic work, you know, I'm a very, um, data oriented person. Um, I care a lot about looking at the best possible evidence and trying to come up with the best possible solution. So I think that that's also an important perspective that I'd bring. Um, you know, I'm a very, I'm a very, um, practical, pragmatic problem solver and I'm really focused on getting results for people here. Well, and and we definitely want to go with a fact-based approach to this. The Associated Press reported some time ago that a normal blue wave election would not be sufficient to take control of the House. How do you make your candidacy part of a larger blue tsunami? Well, I have to tell you that we're really running a very locally based campaign here. And so I'm, you know, not counting on riding on the coattails of sort of what other Democrats are doing in other districts. I mean, this race here is quite unique. I think that Tom McClintock, our incumbent here, is vulnerable uh, for reasons that go beyond just the national political context. Um, He's never lived in our district in the time he's been representing us in Congress. He promised in 2008 to move here. He never bothered to do it. Our local elected officials are completely frustrated with him. He's one of the least effective members of his own party. He's accomplished virtually nothing for our district um, besides naming one or two mountains in a post office, I believe, in 10 years. You know, in that time, we've paid him $1.7 million to be representing us in Washington. Um, So people here are frustrated Of course, there is a lot of outrage about the national political situation, but what's unique about our district is that people got concerned because of the 2016 election, and then they took a long, hard look around, and they realized that their own representative um, was a big part of the problem. So a lot of the criticism and the issues in our district are really focused on McClintock. Um, They're focused on the specific needs of the district here. And the way we're taking advantage of that to build a winning coalition here is to reach out really broadly. So not just talking to our Democratic activists here in the district, but reaching out to our nonpartisan voters. You know, in California, um, folks who don't identify with either political party are the fastest growing group of voters in our state. Um, In our own district, that's more than 20 percent of the voters. Um, We're also talking to Republicans. You know, we just had a really large success successful event for the campaign last night that drew about 200 people um, out to Loomis, which is a town in our district. And there were definitely Republicans there. There were community leaders there who are Republicans. Um, You don't have to be a Democrat to look around and say, hey, our democracy is in danger right now. Um, Hey, this is a time that we need to be thinking out of the box and thinking hard about accountability. Um, So we're working really hard here at the local level to build that kind of bipartisan coalition um, and really, you know, win the trust of voters by working through those community leaders. Well, and it's certainly important to to reach across the aisle. This is something that, that has been sorely lacking this past two years. Um, District 4 has a very large percentage of white voters, many of them rural. In 2012, Mitt Romney received 57.9% of the vote. Republican Representative Tom McClintock took 61%. In the 2014 midterm, McClintock took 60 In 2016, Donald Trump won 54%, and McClintock took 63%. You could need as much as a 14-point swing to win. How do you achieve this? 
Well, in any other year, that might sound unattainable, but we've actually seen Democrats win some special elections in districts that, you know, where the numbers look even less favorable than our district. So our district is definitely in contention this year. And what we've seen is that when a highly qualified Democrat runs a good, smart campaign here that's focused on the local issues, uh, it is possible to I think, win this year. And in the past, it's been possible for Democrats to come very close to winning this seat. So in 2008, uh, for example, Charlie Brown only lost to Tom McClintock by 1,600 votes. That was one of the closest races in the country that year. It went to a recount. Back in the early 1990s, Pat Malberg ran here repeatedly as a Democrat and as a woman, I should add. And she hit 49% of the vote. Um, she very nearly won. And that was back the last time, you know, there was a year of the woman. Uh, a lot has changed in the district since then. Uh, it's really favorable. We've got lots of people moving in from other cities in California. Um, the folks that are here are taking a new look around and are paying attention like they've never paid attention before. So I think we definitely do have a good chance here this year. Um, I'll tell you a couple things that are key, though, for how we win here. Um, the first is our suburbs. So you're right that when we look at a district, when you look at our, when you look at a map of our district, um, it's very large. It's huge. <laughs> it's, mildly, it's massive. I mean, the district is about the size of the state of Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, the larger districts in the country. And, you know, truth be told, uh, if it changed hands, you would actually see the change in national maps. You know, it's a large enough district that you can see it on a national map of congressional districts. Most of our voters are concentrated in a relatively small area, really just in two counties of our district. Um, and those are the two counties that are the most suburban. And that's where we see, you know, whole precincts that went for Hillary Clinton. It's where we see a lot of new people moving in um, from the Bay Area. A lot of people there are younger, are more diverse. I mean, the district is becoming somewhat more diverse. And, um, you know, we have a lot of our healthcare professionals in those areas, too. And so we're finding a really good reception, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans and independents, especially in those suburbs. And that's just the must-win territory uh, for anyone running here. It's why I'm really proud and excited that just this week I was endorsed by two city council members um, from our largest city in the district, Roseville. You know, Roseville is really the key to winning. Um, come November, you don't even have to look at the returns from across our whole district. You can just look at Roseville. And if the Democrat doesn't win Roseville, you can't win the rest of this um, election, basically. Um, something else that's really critical to winning, to winning here is reaching out to women. Um, you know, it might be the case that our district is only 29% registered Democrats. That's true. <laughs> That's not a particularly encouraging number. Um, but here's a number that is more encouraging. We know that over 70% of women in our district do not like Tom McClintock. That's where they're starting from. Their starting point is that they're not fond of him. And there are good reasons for that. I mean, we're talking about someone who voted against the GOP-authored renewal of the Violence Against Women Act. You know, he's so opposed to the Violence Against Women Act, he couldn't even get behind his own party's preferred version of the bill, uh, making him quite unique in the House. Um, we really have an opportunity in our race to you know, talk to women and to work constructively with them and to try to win their trust and support. And I think I have some real advantages in that area. We've seen actually that 
Um, our campaign has been the most among the most successful in the entire country at messaging to women and winning their support. Um, I actually learned recently that I'm among the top 10 House candidates in the entire country who raise the highest proportion of their money from women. Um, we've been raising about 58% of our money from women, which is right on par with Kirsten Gillibrand, Elizabeth Warren, um, and is actually the highest percentage for any federal candidate in California. So, you know, if women are key to winning this seat, I think we're on the path to victory. Definitely. And and certainly right now you're speaking to an awful lot of women because the resistance is made up of women mostly. Talk to me about the veterans of District 4. Absolutely. So our district has um, a very high proportion of veterans. I think there are over 54,000 veterans in our district. And, you know, this is an area where we need to see some real improvements. Um, I mean, I've committed, for example, that I would open two district offices if elected at minimum, because I think it's outrageous that right now uh, some of our constituents are five hours away, four hours away from Tom McClintock's only office in the district. You know, when we're talking about veterans or seniors, um, those are both groups of people who often, you know, need assistance. I mean, they need um, help getting access to the benefits that they're entitled to. Um, I think in the case of veterans, uh, we definitely need to be honoring their service by making sure that they're getting connected, again, with the benefits um, that they've earned. Uh, I absolutely support job training programs for our veterans, uh, which Tom McClintock has actually voted to cut funding for. Um, you know, I recognize that I believe it's about a third of the new federal employees who get hired every year are veterans. And so when we freeze federal hiring, that really has a negative impact on our veterans. Um, it's one of the reasons why, again, I uh, disagree with some of the choices McClintock has made in that area in the past. Um, and I wanted to say very clearly that I'm also opposed to privatizing the VA. I think there are clearly um, aspects of the VA where we need to be improving uh, the quality of care and management. Um, but I know people here have been really concerned by some of the language coming out of Washington and some of the proposals being floated um, to privatize the VA. I know they really value that specialized care that they're receiving. Um, at the same time, though, there are a lot of initiatives uh, to bring in telemedicine uh, and things like that um, into some of the VA uh, treatment plans. And in our district, that's an issue because we actually have large swaths of our district that don't have access to high-speed internet. Um, and so, you know, whether we're talking small business or um, services for veterans or frankly, job training, I mean, a lot of training is done online these days. Um, I think that we need a representative who's going to fight to expand rural broadband. That would definitely be a priority for me. And Tom McClintock has voted against federal support for rural, rural broadband at least twice. Um, so there's a whole package of things that I think we need to do better to be supporting our veterans here. On, on that point of, of expanding access to high-speed high broadband, that's certainly an issue of, of informing the voters. And how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, so far this is a really strong talking point here in the district uh, because it is people's lived experience. I mean, it's their reality. There are some issues where, you know, if you're trying to explain tax policy or even some of the healthcare stuff feels a little bit abstract sometimes. But I can't tell you the number of people that I've run into who have thought about starting a small business or even tried to do so and found it really difficult um, because they just couldn't get internet access in the ways that um, that they needed. I mean, you and I have experienced a few interruptions in this conversation already. Right, right. We are we are in the part of our district that has the best internet access. Um, if you go outside our urbanized areas, even in Placer County, half our rural residents don't have access to high-speed internet. 
Um, we have one of our counties, Mariposa County, where there are virtually no residential customers who have access to high-speed internet. And we're just a couple hours away from Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, this is crazy, but we're really worlds apart uh, when it comes to being able to access uh, the modern economy. And this is concerning to people of all different ages. If we're talking about young families, you know, I've heard stories of parents who have to go drive their kids back to school or over to a public library to be able to file their homework because um, so much homework is assigned through, you know, internet-based systems and things these days. Um, I think about myself. Back in the day, I was able to just get a book that was paper and go through and study for the SAT. But, you know, these days, um, a lot of the test prep stuff, a lot of the tutoring that people want to access is online and um, sometimes video-based. You know, our community colleges are offering more and more online instruction. And for students that are in outlying areas, that's great. It means less driving around. Um, again, we have um, some counties here that don't even have community college campuses, sort of longer distance learning and stuff, except they're also the ones who don't have decent quality uh, internet access. So this is really something that affects everybody here. I mean, it affects seniors who are socially isolated sometimes, who want to be able to Skype with their grandkids and things, especially if they live far away. And I'm actually not making this up. On my, We're using Skype. And right. on my screen here, um, a little warning just flashed up. This is poor network uh, connection. I was laughing that it literally is warning me that we have a poor network connection right now while we're talking about this topic. Yes. So you're experiencing some of the problems that it introduces for anyone trying to communicate with anyone else in our region here. Um, so the, the interesting thing about, about your district, besides how large it is, is, is how much of it is rural. Um, big issues for rural voters tend to be water. That's a huge one, particularly for your independent farmers. How, how are you going to, to take care of those, those issues that, that affect rural voters? Yeah. So again, in terms of population, um, the majority of our population is in urban or suburban areas. Um, but we do have, you know, a sizable chunk of our voters who are in rural areas and sometimes in very mountainous communities. And um, I mean, I've been to every nook and cranny of our district. I tell people all the time, you know, every single person matters. Um, every single person's needs really matter to me. And so I take those needs very seriously. Um, actually, I would say that the top two topics that come up um, in the rural parts of our district are, first of all, fire prevention. So um, our, especially kind of our more outlying communities, are actually at pretty high risk um, from wildfires here. And they want to see changes in the way uh, that we're handling fire prevention and helping communities, you know, reduce the risk of fires. I mean, Again, the impacts of a fire, even if a community can be saved, uh, the economic impacts are huge. I mean, last summer, Mariposa, well, the county seat in, in Mariposa uh, had to be evacuated for a week because of a large fire in the area. And, you know, that meant everybody had a week of lost wages. Um, small businesses had to be shut down. The region really felt the economic impact for months afterward. I mean, even when it when the fair came around, um, people weren't spending money there in the way that they had been the year before. I mean, I had one person tell me that beer sales were down <laughs> to about a third of what they had been the year before because people just didn't have disposable income, right? And this was an instance where the town was saved, actually. I mean, um, some people did lose their homes, unfortunately, but the majority of the town was saved, and still the economic impact was really severe. And this is a town that's a gateway community uh, that leads into Yosemite. And so we definitely hear from tourists all the time um, about how it just doesn't 
look the same. And now they're driving through um, a fire scarred area when they're going in and out of Yosemite. Um, I think it's going to hurt tourism there for quite some time into the future. You know, so this is a serious issue and it's an issue. It's an area where McClintock's policies are completely out of line with science, logic, and reason. Um, I absolutely support, you know, common sense bipartisan measures that are out there right now that would protect fire prevention funding um, and prevent you know, funds that are allocated for fire prevention from being stolen when um, firefighting, when fire suppression goes over budget. Um, I also support um, new legislation that's out there that would give communities funding to try to deal with fire prevention proactively. Um, McClintock's favorite approach, on the other hand, is logging. He actually thinks that we can log our way out of fire danger. He thinks that large-scale logging um, is somehow going to reduce the danger to these communities. And uh, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, in the case of that fire that I was mentioning near Mariposa, that was a fire that occurred in kind of oak woodlands. So, you know, grassy areas, areas um, that are not dense forests, certainly not dense pine forests. I mean, not areas that um, where logging would even be occurring. Uh, and we've seen more and more across California that, you know, wildfires are happening in all sorts of different uh, landscapes. So I think that we need to be starting by focusing on communities and giving communities the tools and the resources that they need uh, to prepare. Um, when it comes to schools, I mean, our rural public schools face a few unique challenges. Um, in a lot of the rural parts of our district, enrollments are declining. So their numbers of students are shrinking. Uh, that means the funding that they're getting from the state shrinks as well. And yet they have to maintain their school buildings. You know, they have to keep the lights on. Um, they have a lot of those fixed costs that they still have to meet. So, you know, I think we need to do more to support our rural public schools. And we also need to be really attentive um, to fighting back and pushing back against policies that harm rural public schools in particular. Um, I mean, I'll tell you that repealing the Affordable Care Act would have actually stripped some funding away from our rural public schools um, that help them with those, you know, overhead costs because they provide some medical, you know, things that are classified as medical treatment there. Um, and then they do get reimbursed for, uh, so, you know, different kinds of therapies and things like that. Um, Private for-profit charters can also have a really disproportionate impact in rural school districts that have low enrollments. Um, if a charter like that moves in, uh, it can really suck resources away very quickly um, from, you know, the local public schools. Um, so I think we need to be really attentive to the needs of rural school districts and be in close communication with the administrators there. What word do you like the most? I saw this in your list of questions. and <laughs> It's a very unique one. Yeah. Um, I think especially in the context of politics, thinking about politics and public policy, um, I like the word progress. You know, I like thinking about the future. Um, I like thinking about possibilities. Right now for our district, we've got somebody in Washington, um, and I always joke that he only knows one word, that our incumbent only knows one word, and that word is no. Um, he thinks that there should be almost no role for government. He has no positive vision of the future. He's not willing to partner with our local governments to get anything done. Um, I just can't see any evidence that even cares about making life better for people. Uh, he gave an interview recently to one of our local papers where he actually said straight up that the way he judges if he's doing a good job or not is not by looking at outcomes in the community, 
you know, I would say we should ask, are there more jobs? Are there good paying jobs that we're creating? Are our public schools getting better? Are we getting more people healthcare coverage, you know, with higher quality and lower costs? Um, He's not looking at any of those things. He says that he knows he's doing a good job if he's being loyal to his ideological principles. And we're talking about somebody who's an extreme tea partier. uh, And really, you know, ideology seems to be just his absolute top objective. And that's not mine. You know, my top goal really is progress, um, working to make life better for people here. What words do you like the least? Oh, I'd say ignorance. Um, I think ignorance, I think willful ignorance is even more frustrating in some ways. And again, uh, we see that with Tom McClintock. So when it comes to climate change, You know, we have a situation here where we've got somebody representing Lake Tahoe and Yosemite National Park, and he's an outspoken climate change denier. Um, He's got a 0% rating from the League of Conservation Voters. He's taking money from the Koch brothers. You know, I think it's a crime. And this is um, a big, it's a big issue for everyone in the district here. Um, We have a lot of Republicans coming over and joining my campaign specifically because they find it really disturbing to look and see the person representing them in Congress being willfully ignorant, um, especially on this issue, on a lot of others, but especially on this issue. I mean, there's only two possibilities. Either Tom McClintock doesn't understand the science, which would be concerning (laughs) if this is the person we're sending out to represent us and make good decisions on our behalf. Or he kind of understands it and, you know, but he's being willfully ignorant, um, which I think is, uh, is also not a good quality in a leader. Um, Do you have anything that you'd like to say to the voters of district four right now? All right. So I would just like to thank the voters of our district for their support and their engagement and participation uh, in my campaign, because this is really a true grassroots campaign that has only been possible um, with the support of hundreds of ordinary people in our district who've stood up and decided to get involved. And they've decided that, you know, this is a time when we all have to do the most that we can to make a difference. Um, I started the campaign just on a laptop in my living room after going to a Tom McClintock town hall and being really frustrated. You know, I was really frustrated by his behavior. I thought he was being callous and dismissive toward his own constituents, just treating them with a disrespect that I'd never seen from an elected official before. And I decided people here deserve better, that they deserve a real choice. Because it's true that he's been winning by wide margins in recent years, but he hasn't faced a credible challenger in 10 years. 10 years! Um, and that's not democracy. You know, now that people are getting their ballots starting in about a week, um, they are actually going to have a choice. And I'm so grateful to all our volunteers for helping to make that happen. You know, our campaign is very different than most serious competitive congressional campaigns across the country. Um, we actually really have a grassroots model. Um, so in this race, you know, I'm raising the highest proportion of money from people who are small dollar donors as compared to any of the other candidates. We've actually been raising um, a very large proportion of our money inside the district here. And, you know, at this point, well, I should say as of um, the last time that OpenSecrets.org tallied up all the different totals and everything, you know, their current numbers that they have analyzed there, uh, we've raised about almost twice as much money as Tom McClintock has here inside our district. So this is really a grassroots campaign that's based here in the district, um, that's grown up with the support of ordinary people here. 
And I'm so grateful to them for that. And I think that that is our pathway to victory in November um, because people here have their differences. Some people are Republicans, some people are Democrats, but we want jobs, we want healthcare, we want a clean, safe, healthy environment, we want great public schools. And a lot of people are concerned about the quality of our democracy right now. Um, you know, I think I can safely say that our democracy is under assault like it's never been before. Yeah. And Tom McClintock is not a voice for accountability. I mean, quite to the contrary. Every day I wake up and like a lot of people look at my cell phone and I see that Donald Trump has done something new and <laughs> irrational, um, dangerous. Hashtag moral- what did he tweet today? Exactly. Exactly. And every day I think maybe this will be the thing that's a step too far for Tom McClintock. Maybe today will be the day that Tom McClintock finally stands up and says, "Eh, you know, I'm a Republican, but I can't condone that kind of behavior. It has yet to happen. I mean, even here in a district that is um, very family oriented, all the Stormy Daniels stuff was not enough to push uh, Tom Clintock to put any distance between himself and Donald Trump. Um, You know, Trump's crazy foreign policy by tweet um, that risks tweeting us into World War Three. McClintock's only response is to praise Trump's leadership and his decision making skills. Um, I mean, it's just shocking to me. And it's shocking to a lot of people here in the district. And it's marginalized <laughs> it's marginalized this from our allies around the world. And not not just the smaller allies, the big allies like England and, and France and and many, many others. Mm-hmm. Now there's tremendous damage being done to America's reputation right now, um, which I think is a tragedy. I mean, there's also long-term harm being done to the State Department, um, where I used to work. I mean, I can tell you that you know, large numbers of career ambassadors, uh, people who have decades of experience and knowledge have left uh, since Trump became president. And it is going to take years and years to try to build up um, the human capital and the knowledge that has been lost. So I'm really concerned. And I think we need to change and we need to change now. There's not a moment to waste. Okay, and your website for our uh, resistance members who would like to donate to you? Excellent question. Um, our website is batesonforcongress.com. So it's B-A-T-E-S-O-N, the number four, congress.com. And for all of our listeners, when I tweet this out tonight, that will be included on the thread that this goes out on. We select our candidates from uh, Democrats Work for America, a political action committee uh, formed explicitly to empower political grassroots activists by providing the needed resources to put their ideas into action. The scope of our mission includes get out the vote efforts, efforts, uh, community education and targeted outreach. Uh, improved messaging on democratic platform awareness, coalition building, candidate vetting, and campaign support. Uh, so please also drop by at democratsworkforamerica.org and donate. Um, Re- Regina Bateson, thank you so very much for, for coming on Avalanche of Resistance tonight. I'm Jack Snow of The Resistance. Resistance.